your copy of God's perfect word, I invite you to open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. There you are, sir. Book of Revelation, chapter 3. Uh, Revelation is uh, one of the easiest books to find. It's the last book in the Bible, and so if you just uh, go to your back cover and open it up a few back, you'll find Revelation. We're only going through chapters 2 and 3 in this particular series. Uh, on, uh, we're looking at seven traits of a Christ-centered church. We are on the sixth trait uh, this week, persevering. We'll close out this uh, sermon series next week as we look at the, the letter to Laodicea. And then uh, Pastor Dave is going to bring a message uh, the week after that on September 1st. And then on September 8th, we will start our new series going back into Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham and what that means and says about God and about Jesus Christ, and then also what it says about us. And so I'm very excited to see what the Lord's going to do in the coming weeks. We have a very exciting um, few weeks coming up. But this week we're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 13. Uh, if you want to follow along, and I encourage you to follow along in your Bible if you have one. If you don't, I have it on the screen behind uh, behind me, it might be a different translation than you're used to, but uh, that's okay. But we're going to look at uh, starting in verse 7. This is what Jesus writes through the pen of the Apostle John. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come down and bow at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on, or on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would open our ears to hear what the Spirit has for us this morning, Lord. We pray that we would see the glories of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and that we would live faithfully to him, persevering in the faith for all of our days, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, when he was only seven years old, his family was forced out of their home on a legal technicality. And at that same age of seven years old, he actually had to go to work in order to support his family. At age nine, his mother died. At age 22, he lost his job as a store clerk. 
He wanted to go to law school, but his grades were, were not quite good enough to make it into law school. Uh, at 23, he went into debt to become a partner in a small store. Just three years after that, his partner died, and he absorbed the rest of that debt, and he lived in a great debt and took him years in order to pay off that debt. At 28 years, after courting a girl for four years, he proposed to her, and she said no. At 37, on his third try, he was elected to Congress. But two years later, he wasn't reelected. At 41, his four-year-old son died. At 45, he ran for the Senate and lost. At 47, he was in the vice presidential running, and he lost that as well. At 49, he ran for the Senate again and lost. At age 51, he was elected president of the United States and became what many historians consider to be the greatest president in American history. His name was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's story is one of tragedy, it's one of failure, it's one of, one of heartbreak, but it's also a story of undying perseverance in spite of many obstacles. You know, our story, our life story, is not that much different than Lincoln's. You and I have, are, or will face many setbacks in our lives, heartbreak, loss, maybe discouragement, confusion, and, and, and things like that. But in the midst of difficulty, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to rise above those things and live with undying perseverance and faithfulness to Jesus Christ for His glory and for His namesake. Today we're looking at this letter to the Church of Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia that is located in modern-day Turkey. And in this letter, Jesus encourages us that whatever life throws at us, we must remain faithful and persevere. And we find that we can do that in three ways. The first is that we need to trust that Jesus is reliable. We need to trust that Jesus is reliable. You know, Philadelphia was uh, a city that was um, uh, uh, susceptible to volcanic volcanic activity. And also, it suffered from frequent earthquakes. And actually, in AD 17, there was such a large earthquake in Philadelphia that it leveled the city. And understandably so, from then on after that earthquake, the entire city was frozen and living in constant fear that their property and their very lives may be lost at any instant. They never knew when the next big one was going to, was going to hit. Every day, can you imagine, every day would have been marked questioning whether this was going to be the day that it was coming. 
So it was a city that, that lived in instability. They desired safety. They desired reliability. They, they desired comfort. They wanted something that they could hold on to that would not break, that would not crumble, that would not fall to pieces, something that was strong, something that was sure, something that could not get ruined. You know, we can relate to that. You know, we live every day in in different kinds of fears. We may not live on a fault line, but, you know, there's talks of a major recession coming again. There, there's, there's, uh, there's talks of uh, uh, the things heating up with Iran and now China, and, and who knows what's going to happen as we enter into a new uh, presidential election cycle next year. Our culture looks for, for stability. It looks for reliability. But when we look in this passage here, Jesus presents himself as the one and only person and idea that we can go to that is stable, that will never let us down, that is a fortress, that is a rock, that is our strong tower. Notice the introduction that he gives himself in verse 7. It says, thus says the Holy One. In other words, this is the perfect one. This is the one who is absolutely holy. This is the one that is set apart from sin. This is the one that is pure. And he goes on to say that he is also the true one. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. There is no truth apart from him. Whereas many people have opinions about God, about how to get to him, what he's like, what he tolerates, maybe what he doesn't tolerate. Only Jesus can reveal to us who God is and what he is like. Whereas the, the politicians and celebrities and the, and the pundits of our uh, day, they try to impart a quote-unquote truth, only Jesus tells us that in himself is the only truth. Now look, continuing in verse 7. Jesus is the one who has the keys of David. He is the, the promised Davidic king of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, which is what that word means. The one alone who can save. Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this one Jesus wipes us clean from our, uh, our sin and keeps us from sin. He presents those who treasure him blameless before God the Father. Those who trust in him don't just have uh, their slate cleaned off, but rather all of Christ's record of righteousness is applied to them. Every bit of goodness that Jesus Christ has the believer has attributed to him. What a great transfer that is. Further in verse 7, he says that he is the one who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no, one's op and no one opens. So he opens hearts to see his glory. He opens hearts to see his goodness, to, to believe in his gospel. And he holds those who are his in his sovereign hand, and no one can deliver them from him. 
John 17 tells us that he has not lost any of them, meaning that he will never lose us if we are his. In John 10, verse uh, 28, it says, I give them eternal life that they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I went to a baseball game. It was one of uh, Kirby Puckett's last baseball games. And I was sitting on the, uh, the, I believe it was the third baseline. And we were sitting by this Canadian couple. Uh, I, I was a young kid and I was kind of getting annoyed with this couple. So my friend and I, we decided to scoot over just a few seats. And lo and behold, the next inning, Kirby Puckett hits a foul ball that lands right in the seat that I was sitting in. And so I run over there to grab this ball, and this woman, I found out she was from Canada later, had the grip of a grizzly bear on that ball. And I tried to snatch it from her hand to no avail. She got one of Kirby Puckett's last foul balls, and I was left with nothing. In the same way, you can't snatch God's people out of his hand. He's that strong. He is that powerful. And knowing that, then Jesus will preserve you in your faith and grant you perseverance, gives us great hope and great joy. So who or what are you trusting in this morning that compares to this Jesus? What are you trusting in to deliver you from sin? Your own willpower? Or your own strength? What else do you have? What possession could you possibly own that can deliver you from this body of death? We live in confusing times. Politicians will, will tell you the problems, but they'll sadly lack any sufficient help in order to make it better. CNN and Fox News will only jade you in how to interpret life. Getting your truth from Facebook comment discussions, all that will do will make you confused and bitter. The cultural ideologues only, are only pushing us further and further away from truth and closer to tyranny. And many times, we cannot even trust our own intellect, our own hearts. Our emotions are not reliable guides for truth. Other people's opinions are not reliable guides for truth. Donald Trump, CNN, Fox News, Ben Shapiro, none of them are reliable sources for truth. Only Jesus alone gives us truth. Only his word can sort out the messy details of our lives and put perspective on them in a grand scheme of things. He alone gives us a moral compass to point us in the right direction. This letter is written by the Holy One. It is written by the True One who has the key of David, who will open and close, and no one can do the opposite. No one can take that from him. He is worthy of your trust. He is reliable. But the question is, will you trust in him today? Will you see him as reliable and take him on for yourself? So that's the first thing. Secondly, we need to abide by Jesus' word 
We need to abide by Jesus' word. Abide isn't a word that we use very often anymore, but it's actually a good word. If you look at the classical definition, it's a little bit of a different definition today, but if you look at the, the classical definition, it's, it's to, to live in, to dwell in. And here Jesus, just as he says in Colossians chapter 3, he wants us to dwell in his word and I, and I wrote out four ways that we ought to do that. The first is keeping Jesus' word creates ministry opportunities. Keeping Jesus' word creates ministry opportunities. You know, there's evidence that as we go through this, this church, that Philadelphia was pretty unwavering in their obedience to Christ. There, there, there's no negative things that Jesus says to them about what they're doing. It's one of the only letters here, one of two, in which Jesus commends them, and he doesn't... Uh, doesn't condemn them for anything, doesn't rebuke them. Rather, he says, I know your words, and he goes on to an encouragement in verse 8. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have little power. So get this. Here's a little church in a, in a decent-sized community with very little influence. It's a church that doesn't have a lot of money. It's a church that doesn't have a lot of clout. It's a church that probably isn't well-educated. It was a blue-collared community. They're not culturally influential, but yet Jesus says and tells them that though you might not have power according to worldly standards, that's not where power is found. Power isn't found in prestige. It isn't found in lucrative positions of influence. Rather, power is found in weakness and dependence on Christ in obedience to his word. It's totally opposite of what the world would tell us that power is. The world tells us that might makes right, and Jesus tells us no, weakness makes right, and obeying his word makes right. Look in verse 8. He says, You have kept my word. So even in the midst of this persecution, Jesus commends them for keeping his word by being faithful to him. True power is found in being faithful and obedient to Christ. Again in verse 8, he says, You have not denied my name. You know, in the early church, not denying Jesus' name and being persecuted for your obedience and faithfulness to him was a powerful witness. You see, people in, in, in uh, the Roman Empire would not have been able to understand, and we wouldn't even be able to understand, how people can sing praises to this one that they call the Savior while they are tied to a stake and their flesh is burning and they're going to their death. People could not understand how someone could still love Jesus while a hungry lion is coming straight at them in a Roman Colosseum. People could not understand why anyone would praise Jesus as the guillotine was being raised and ready to drop down. But these people that were witnesses saw their faith in the midst of their death. And it was one way in which people were brought to faith in Christ. Why? Because it's not normal to embrace suffering. 
more than anything, we want to run from death. We want to run from suffering. And why would anyone want to stay loyal to anyone or anything in those terms if that's what they're bringing? But if someone can look death squarely in the eye and say, you have absolutely nothing on me, well, that's inspiration for anyone to face death. And they want to know, how did that person live and die in that way? The early church father, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And persecution was definitely a way in which God grew his church. Their power of staying faithful to Jesus created ministry opportunities. Your most powerful ministry opportunity, the biggest door that you may one day have open, may be when the door of life is closing in on you. Some of the most encouraging times that I have had in ministry is being next to someone who is in their final days, hours, and minutes. I want to go in to encourage them on their way out. More often than not, I am encouraged coming out because of their faithfulness. And that is a powerful witness. God blesses people in churches who are faithful to him, whether in life or death, you are to be faithful and dependent on him. But also, keeping Jesus' words brings victory. Look in verse 9. He says, note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. So throughout many of these, these, these seven letters, uh, there's this pattern that Jesus teaches us that it is possible to consider yourself a person of the faith community and not be part of that community. And here, uh, there are these people who claim to be Jews. They worshiped at a synagogue. They probably went through the motions of the faithful people, but they weren't believers in the true God. And notice Jesus even calls them satanic, that the way they are going about it is not right. In their particular situation, their primary task is to eliminate and destroy any Christians that they know of. They've traded being God's people for being God's enemy. Yet for this church, these true people of God, Jesus says that there is a day when these enemies will bow at their feet and they will know that Jesus loved them. So are you, are you weary this morning because maybe it doesn't seem like the witnessing or the loving on someone that you're doing is seeming to make a difference? Or are you weary because you maybe have experienced some rejection or maybe ridicule, loss of friends, employment, family? Do you have a heavy heart because of your obedience to Jesus? Scripture tells us this morning that we need to take heart, that rescue is coming. Victory is already assured. 
And as good as that sounds, it should also break our hearts. There's coming a time when we will rejoice that we are with Christ, but now we are living in a fallen world and thinking about our enemies weeping at our feet that ought to terrify us and it ought to well up in us a heart that very adamantly wants to see these people know Jesus. We should never delight in the fact that people that, don't, uh, that, that make fun of us or hurt us or, or do things against us in Jesus, we should never take joy in the fact that they are going to be at our feet weeping because they didn't know Jesus. This is a call to action. Keep Jesus' words. Be faithful to him and love your enemies. But also keeping Jesus' word will also persevere you through those difficulties. Look in verse 10. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth because they have been faithful in persecution. Jesus is is here going to see to it that they make it through to the end. Now, there's a whole host of ways that we can interpret this, this passage. We could uh, look at it as grounds to, uh, say, a pre-tribulational rapture, meaning that the church is taken up in a left-behind sort of way before, uh, you know, things really get bad around here. And I, I happen to not hold that doctrine. I, I, I don't see it that way, but there's one way that you could uh, look at that. Um, he could be talking about bringing his, pa- his people through uh, the suffering safely because the word uh, in your translation there, from, in the Greek can also be translated as through. And so there's some ambiguity there. Is he going to save us from or is he going to save us through? There's a big difference between uh, the two words there. He, could not be, he also could not be referring to a rapture at all. I mean, he is talking to a certain church at a certain place uh, at a certain time. He could just be saying that, uh, you know, one day uh, you're just going to be dead and gone before all of this happens. So whether you have uh, one of those ideas, I think, is sort of beside the point because I think the point that he is trying to make here is that God delivers us through and from suffering. There are countless things that he has held you back from that you have no idea about. And there are a number of things that you could probably name off already that God has brought you through that we can be thankful that he has been faithful in that. In John 16, Jesus promised us that in this life you will have suffering, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And also, finally, uh, keeping Jesus' word prepares us for his coming. Look in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. In his, uh, in his book, Crazy Love, Francis Chan talks about this uh, scene of going to uh, a play with his wife's grandma. This is what he, he wrote. He said, I once attended a play with my wife and some of her relatives, including her grandma Clara, During the intermission, I leaned over and asked her how she liked the play. And she said, 
oh, honey, I really don't want to be here right now. And when I asked why, she replied, I just don't know if this is where I want to be when Christ returns. I'd rather be helping someone or on my knees praying. I don't want to return and have him find me sitting here in a theater. So I wonder how ready are we for when that time comes? You know, as individuals and as a church, we need to be prepared. Is your life, is your mindset, and is your attitude ready for this time to come? Would you say that you have been so faithful in word and deed that if Jesus were to come back right now in the middle of the sermon, that you'd be ready? You know, Grandma Clara, that's a fairly, uh, I think, extreme example, but the point is, is that we need to live and keep Christ's word so much that we're prepared at any moment for him to come and deliver us. Are we as a church prepared? Are you as an individual prepared? Because he tells us he is coming soon. So, finally, we need to take refuge in God's presence. Take refuge in God's presence. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. See, this, reading this, it's easy to get sort of confused because this seems so foreign. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? But it would have made perfect sense to the uh, citizens of the church at Philadelphia. If you remember, this was a, a church that was frozen, a, a city in general that was frozen in fear. A volcano or an earthquake could happen at any time and just devastate the city. And people were so fearful, in fact, that there was a good number of them that moved out of the inner city and into the rural areas because they were afraid that if their, their tall buildings and their tall structures, if they were around them when the earthquake happened, then it would come crashing down on them and that they would lose their, their lives as well. You know, as a cultural movement goes, we see the exact opposite today. We see the inner cities growing, and we see the rural areas shrinking. But here, out of fear, they thought that, the, that being out of the city would save them. And Christ is telling them that if they stay faithful to his word, they will be citizens of an entirely new city, the new Jerusalem. This is not the Jerusalem right now that we find over uh, in the Middle East. This is a brand new one that comes down out of heaven. And he is telling them that never will they have to go out of that city from fear, from the city taking them out. Never are they going to have to be so fearful in Christ's kingdom that they're going to have to run from it. 
Rather, there is safety and there is security in living in Christ's city. And they won't have to have fear or anxiety about the problems that they have and we have by extension because Christ is going to be ruling and reigning in that place in perfection. You know, when the city was destroyed in AD 17, the emperor Tiberius came in and he funded the rebuild of the city. It was sort of a primitive uh, FEMA program, if you want to uh, call it that. And after the city was rebuilt, he renamed it to Neo Caesarea, which means uh, the new town of Caesar. And then roughly 25 years later after that, uh, to honor the emperor, uh, he's got a long name, Titus Flavius Sabinus Vasperian, they changed the name of the city to Flavian. And at the time of this letter, which was in about A.D. 95, it was back to being Philadelphia. So imagine that, four name changes within the course of about 75 years. Imagine if Mora had a name change that many times. How confusing would that be? And right now, if you were to go to this city, you'd find it in modern-day Turkey. It's called Al-Sahir. But Christ is saying to them that the name of my God, the founder of this new Jerusalem who is unchanging, who is always stable, not shifting, not impure, but rather is the embodiment of holiness, is the ruler of this city and the founder of this city. The city name will never change. Jerusalem, in its very name, gives us the idea of city of peace, an idea of which would be found, the city would be founded on. It's a city that's not subject to being conquered. This is not a city that will be, uh, that will be uh, taken out by natural disasters. It comes from heaven. And Jesus says here that the residents of this future city will have their, uh, their own names. They won't have to constantly see a new city council coming in and going out and new ideas and new laws and all these different things. It is one that will not be corrupt. It will not be impure. It's one that will execute justice and love perfectly in one. Whereas emperor worship was idolatry, People in this new city will be able to freely and joyfully worship the true emperor, Jesus. And we may have the same struggles that this church did. We're, we're not maybe moving out to the cornfields or, or, or the woods to escape volcanic ash and, and, and earthquake, but we still try to escape dangers in our own hearts, and in our own lives. We fear sickness and death so much that we are willing to go to any length and pay any expense to avoid it as much as possible. We fear financial ruin, and so we set up nest eggs that really at any given moment, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee how they're going to uh, turn out for us. We fear uh, for our children going off the rails. So we become helicopter parents and try to dictate every aspect of their lives.
We fear being looked at strangely for Jesus. So we don't talk about him in the public sphere, but rather we hide in our Christian bubble within the church. We fear losing family and friends and reputation, and so instead of proclaiming the faith once delivered to the saints that we are called to, we retreat rather to having a private faith, one that's just for us and not for anyone else. We fear a lot, but we don't need to fear. We can take refuge in God because he's with us. If you are a child of God this morning, you need to remember that you have the Spirit of God inside of you, and regardless of the consequences, he promises that he will be with you. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, then who can be against us? So we don't need to fear. God is in us now and he will be with us in this new city. Things are tough now, but we have the spirit of God living in us. And one day Jesus will come down with this new city and God will dwell with us just as he did with Adam before the fall into sin. Turn with me a moment to um, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. You know, the church at Philadelphia would never have just received uh, their uh, X number of verses and that be it. They would have received the book of Revelation as a whole from chapter 1 to 22, although they didn't have those chapter markings uh, at that point. And, but what that helps us understand is that they would have interpreted their current situation into what John writes throughout this letter. And Revelation 21 is helpful for us to understand what is the big picture of what we are going through as well. And this is what it says in verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This promise, friends, is from God. What if we actually trusted this? What if we actually trusted that Jesus is reliable and we showed that trust by being faithful to him? 
Though life may be difficult now, Jesus promises to bring us through it. And one day, we will walk with God in a secure dwelling. He'll be our God. We'll be His people. Without fear, but with joy and praise to the one who redeemed us and cleansed us from every sin. We need to take refuge in God now. You know, in 1836, the Washington Monument Society uh, announced that they had chosen Robert Mills as the architect of what we now know as the, the Washington Monument. And Mills had slaved for months over these elaborate plans that he had for this monument. He, he dared to, to dream big, which was this, this granite, huge thing soaring 555 feet in the air. It would be the tallest masonry structure in the world, and in fact is. Uh, but the funds didn't, they didn't come in as fast as the society had hoped. Construction wasn't able to begin until a full 12 years after he had made the plans for it. The engineers then discovered that the ground at the site was too soft to support such a, such a heavy stone monument. So they had to start over uh, further north from the original spot. And work, it, it actually went good for about six years. And major figures started lining up to donate to this, this fund. But in 1854, when Pope Pius IX donated a marble block from the Temple of Concord, a group of uh, sabbaters stole the block and completely destroyed it. The incident shocked the public, and, and uh, donations nearly stopped. And the members of what was then called the Know Nothing Political Party broke into the society's office, and they actually seized the possession of the monument. And then vandals continued to break and, and deface the monument, and construction finally stopped in 1855. And what remained of Mill's uh, soaring dream was this squat, ugly, 150-foot-tall stump. The next year, Mills died. But his vision wouldn't. 25 years after his death and 50 years after his original idea, uh, the work began. And four years later, a cast aluminum cap was, was placed uh, over the granite top, and today that monument stands as the tallest masonry structure in the entire world. You know, we're called to be faithful to our Savior in perseverance. It may at times seem like our faithfulness is absolutely fruitless and pointless. And indeed, understanding the, the, the journey's worth might not be realized until we're dead and long gone. But Christ promises us that if we remain faithful, His Word says that He will make us a pillar in the temple of His God. So I ask you today, what are you building your faith on?
God is building his temple. Are you a part of that temple? As broken bricks we are, he will use you to build his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for for Jesus Christ who was uh, unyieldingly faithful to you. Lord, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now as followers of him, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us be faithful. Lord, as your word says that no one will snatch uh, us out of your hand, but yet you call us to be faithful, Lord, help us to, to feel that tension and to live faithfully according to you. God, I pray for those who have weak faith today that you would strengthen their feeble knees, that you would give them spiritual power in their weakness to love you and to live for you. Father, I pray for those who may be strong in you this morning, that you would continue strengthening them, that you would give them encouragement, that you would uh, help them not to be discouraged. Father, I pray for those who uh, might not have a clue of what this faith thing is or just checking this Jesus thing out that they would see that life is indeed on a fault line that will one day break open. And only Jesus will save us from that. Father, give us the gift of faith this morning. And we ask this in your precious and perfect name. Amen.